0: You were paying attention to that last line he just read: "Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails you, they will receive you into eternal dwellings." We ought to just pray and go home after that one. Um, in fact, Luke 16 is not a a, a, a chapter that uh, preachers like to preach. Want to preach? I, I'm not one of them, by the way why I'm going to preach it today, Uh, preaching it mostly because it follows 15. There's no way I can skip over it without getting in trouble, Um, but it is an interesting parable, one that uh, I've enjoyed spending another weekend and and getting to know even better than I knew before and uh, being challenged by it, very challenged by it, Um, embarrassingly challenged by it. In uh, the Gospel of Luke, by the way, if if you haven't visited, if you haven't been here, maybe you, you visited a while back, a year ago, or six months ago, and perhaps I taught, I was back in Luke 6, and I taught on money, because that's what Luke 6 was about, and, and today you're back, and I'm going to speak on money, and you're going to think, and it's all these other guys ever talk about, it's money. Well, shame on you for missing the time in between, because we've talked about the, the deity of Christ, the glory of God, what it means to be a follower of Christ, uh, Uh, Don't blame me, by the way, if you think, well, he's just trying to get money. I'm not. It's not my goal at all. I just preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and when it comes about, so be it. But the interesting thing about money in the Bible is you can't escape it. Uh, It's spoken of so often. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now, by the way, everyone in here is rich, especially according to, to first century standards. So, woe to you. You're all in trouble. We are all in trouble. No, it's, it's only woe to your rich if you are not rich towards God with what God has enriched you with. Woe to you. He's saying essentially if you're living in your riches and that's what keeps you happy, that's what your ultimate goal is, then you have received your comfort. The only comfort you're ever going to get is that which you find in your money. And as we know, it will go away as will we. There is the parable of the rich fool that Jesus gives in chapter 12 of the man who had so much, he looked around and he said, look, I'm going to destroy all my old barns because they're old and ugly and don't hold all my stuff. I'll build new barns, put all my stuff in there, and then I will sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, woe to him, tonight his life will be demanded of him. And who will enjoy his wealth after that? So he speaks out harshly against it. Today we're going to look at this unjust or this unrighteous money manager. Uh, next week, we'll look at uh, in the verses that follow, verses 10 through, through 18, on uh, more wealth, this uh, call to be faithful with our wealth. And then after that, we're going to see a rich guy who gave nothing to, to God's glory alongside a man named Lazarus who died. They both died. One went to, to paradise and one went to Hades. We'll see that. We'll also see later on the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus in chapter 18, wanting to know how he can have eternal life. Jesus tells him, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. How about that? The guy says, can't do it. Jesus says, sorry. Thanks for asking. Good to see you. And then Zacchaeus, who follows right on the heels of that one, who's this short guy. That's why we love him. Can't see. climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. He's been bilking people out of their money for years and years. Then he converts to to faith in Jesus, and he says, I'll go back to everyone I know and pay up four times more than what I owe. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house today. So we see money throughout the gospel of Luke itself. Throughout the Bible, it's there. No way around it. But please, if you're visiting for the second time, third time, first time, um, in no way is this church about money. But just note that, that money is throughout the Bible, and from time to time, you, you pounce upon it here. So Jesus is telling his disciples. By the way, the parables that precede this in chapter fifteen are spoken to the scribes and Pharisees, unbelievers among the crowd that are following Jesus. This, those parables were for Jesus is saying, uh, "This shepherd will leave ninety nine; he'll get the one." And there's joy in heaven over Jesus finding the lost, over this woman that lost one coin. And there's joy in heaven the same way that she found her lost coin. And there's joy in heaven over this prodigal son who goes away, repents, and comes back, and God welcomes him with open arms, with a great big smile on his face. I hope you picked that up last week. Every time you sin as a believer, you don't come back to a scowling, angry God. You come back to a God whose arms are wide open with a big smile to welcome us back. Or maybe it's for the first time in the case of the prodigal. Welcome him into his arms for eternity. And then we see that the older son, who depicts the scribes and the Pharisees, who was angry at God's grace, and they're the very ones that handed Jesus over to the Romans to have him killed. This parable, however, in verse chapter 16, verse 1, he, that is Jesus, was saying to the disciples. So this one is meant for his followers. Not just the crowd, but he changes his focus from the scribes and Pharisees to his disciples. He's going to tell a story. There was a rich man who had a manager. A lot of wealthy people then as now need someone or or a group, a company to manage their wealth. That's what's going on here. So there's two men, both of which are going to be scoundrels. Uh, It's going to focus mostly on the money manager, but they're both scoundrels, deceitful men acting deceitfully, rich man. He had a manager, and this manager was reported as squandering his possessions. That word for reported, by the way? is the same root word for the word we get for Satan, the accuser, the devil. He was reported he was accused of. So just neither here nor there. It doesn't change the the outcome of the parable, but I just wanted you to know that he's reported some unnamed person has gone and told the rich guy that, hey, your money manager is squandering your wealth. It means to use it loosely. He's supposed to manage it wisely. He's distributing it loosely, squandering it. Verse 2, he, that's the rich man, he called him, that's the, his steward, his money manager, and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's fired. He's summoned to this rich guy. The rich guy says, uh, here's what's happened. Here's the accounting. Here's what I hear. You're fired. Ever been fired? Fired, I mean, to be fired is to, to you're in a position now, what am I going to do? And the example of what this man is going to do is very telltale here, because he's an unjust manager, and he says to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Both of these jobs would have been apparently beneath him. He's gone from a man who manages great wealth to thinking the only other thing I can do is dig or... or." Uh, can't beg. If you've ever dug a hole, digging holes looks like a pretty easy job, doesn't it? You know, in in movies or TV shows, just dig a hole. How many of you ever heard, I'm going to copy Nate Bargetsy's digging a hole? You've heard of Nate Bargetsy? He said, this is the hardest job in the world. There's nothing more difficult than digging a hole. And if you've ever dug a hole, you know you're digging, you're digging. He said, this is why people die in shallow graves all the time. People go, that's enough. Put them in there. Throw some leaves on top of them. I know, it's a little risque for church, I know. But uh, I can't dig, and I'm not going to beg. What will I do? I know what I'll do, verse 4, so that when I am removed from management, from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Now, the man owes his boss money. He hasn't just been fired, he has squandered his boss's wealth, so he owes him the money. Just because you're fired doesn't mean you don't have to pay it back. It doesn't say that here, but he knows it, and what he goes to work to do, he's knowing if I can't dig, and I can't beg, and I'm not going to get enough money to pay back my master, what will I do? I know what I'll do. And so we see here is this guy that's fired, he has enough wherewithal that he knows he has to, in the interest of self-preservation, he's going to go to extreme lengths, and Jesus is going to use him as an example. Of what Christians typically do not do. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management. People will welcome me into their homes. Verse 5. He summoned each of his master's debtors. We don't know how many there are. Only two are highlighted here. And he began saying to the first. How much do you owe my master? Now it's important to note. That in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. I believe it's Exodus 23, and then Leviticus 25, I forget where it is in Deuteronomy. I've written it down somewhere. But Jews are not to charge interest to fellow Jews. If you need a loan, if you need $100, you give them $100. You don't expect payment in return. It's a gift. If they pay you back in return, fine. You don't charge interest. Jews were forbidden to charge interest to other Jews. So the only way to make money is to embed the interest within the loan. In other words, if someone needed $100, you gave them $200. Okay? Here's two, you need 100, here's 200. You're going to pay me back. So you get or you get the 100, you get the 100, but you're going to pay me 200 back. That's what I meant to say. So you're going to make 100, but you're saying you kind of saying, "Well, we're not charging interest." Well, what's the extra two, extra $100? Well, that's just my fee. It's not interest. You're going to pay this back to me. So this is what makes the rich guy a scoundrel in and of himself. So we're going to bilk people, even though they just need $100, we'll give them the 100 but you're going to pay me 200 back. So he summons these people. Verse 6, he said, a hundred measures of oil. He asked the guy, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, a hundred measures of oil. By the way, that's 800 to 900 gallons of oil, which would be olive oil. If you've ever been to Israel, there's olive trees everywhere. It equates to about 150 trees. That's a lot of oil. A payment that's difficult to pay back, one that he couldn't pay back. So he tells him, since you owe this much, you owe 100 measures of oil, take your bill. Note this. You take the bill, sit down and quickly write 50. Note that the manager doesn't say, I'm going to write you a new bill for 50. He makes the person complicit in the scheme. Don't miss that. You sit down and in your own handwriting, write out a new bill. Your handwriting, you're going to be complicit in my scheme. I'm only going to make you pay 50. Now, it might be that 50 was all he actually owed. The other 50 was the tacked on interest embedded within that loan. But the guy, he gave him this. Apparently, this is what he could pay. I can't pay you 100, but I can pay you 50 right now and be done. Great, pay it. Pretty shrewd with someone else's money. Verse 7, then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. This equates to, I'm told, 100 acres of land. A hundred acres of land. Even cheap acreage would still be expensive in this regard. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80. 80, just 80 of the hundred. Apparently this is what this particular man could afford Can't afford the hundred, but I can afford the eighty. Gives him eighty. Writes it down again in his own handwriting. Write down, you make it, you write it out. Verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's interesting. So imagine that you're the rich guy, and the person squandering your money did this. And somebody owed you these all this money. We only get two, as I said. He, it could have been a whole bunch more. Probably was. We only get the highlights of two. So the man has all these loans out there. His manager, after being fired, has gone to these people, asked them, or, or said, "Look, if you owe this, I'm just going to make you pay that. Write out the new bill in your handwriting. That'll be it. You're done. We'll close the book on you." The the person goes away going, "Wow, this is fantabulous. I'm scot free now. I paid this. I'm done." So, the unjust manager has made a friend, and the person he's given the break to, right? Make sure you note that, because that's part of the story. And the money guy, the rich guy, is going, wow, that's pretty shrewd. The word for shrewd means to act with practical intellect, to use your mind wisely, using common sense, and that's what the guy did. It would be like this, a story I heard Alistair Begg tell a while back. And he said, there were two thieves, and they broke into a person's car. They stole this car. They took the car. They were gone for three days in the car, enjoying the car. But they came back. They brought it back. They cleaned it up. They filled it full of gas, changed the oil. The car was in better condition when it came back than it was when they left it. And they wrote a note of apology. We're sorry for any inconvenience. Please forgive us. Here's two tickets to the opera for tonight, please, on us. People get their car back. Well, this is fantastic. What a deal. Car's in good shape. We had an empty tank before. It's all good. They go to the opera, and while they're at the opera, the thieves ransack their house. Now, if you're a thief, see, you're laughing. No one was appalled by that. Oh, that's so horrible. If you're a thief, you're going, whoa, I wish I would have thought of that. That is called, that's the point here, is it's not so much that what a great idea, it's an an unjust steward, an unrighteous man acting unrighteously, acting shrewdly to the point where we all go, wow, that's pretty good. Our first reaction is, that is so horribly sinful. It is, but it's pretty shrewd. That's why his master prays in verse 8. his praise the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. To act shrewdly again with practical intellect. Remember when Jesus sent out the 12 in um, Matthew chapter 10 verse 16 he says be as shrewd as serpents harmless as doves. A shrewdness, shrewd person. It's not a bad word. It does mean to act wisely. But it's, we don't like to think of ourselves as acting like a snake. Shrewd as serpent. There's, some, there's a compliment in there somewhere, and then there's something kind of cutting. Man, you at lances, he is shrewd as a serpent. I don't know that I want that. But serpents know just when to strike and just when to slither away. When the devil came to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he was in the form of a serpent. And he told her, has God, or he really asked her, God really say that you can't eat that fruit? Oh, yeah. He said, we can't eat it. Ah, God knows that when you eat that fruit, you'll be just like him. He's trying to rip you off. So, Which woman is going, wait a minute. He's trying to rip me off. No one wants to be ripped off. No one wants to be bilked out of anything. Who does God think he is telling me I can't have this fruit? The devil didn't pull it, put it right in front of her face and say, here, eat it. He just put doubt in her mind. Wily, shrewd, it worked. She ate. Her husband ate. You and I are not to be, to be uh, dishonestly shrewd. We're to be shrewd in the sense of, all right, let's, let's take note of our environment. Let's take note of the situation around us. Let's take note of our options. Sometimes it might be with sharing the gospel. Sometimes it might be getting out with your life. It happens in marriage. Let's be shrewd in our marriages. What you say, what you don't say. What you do, what you don't do. With your children, at at your job, with a friend, with an enemy. Shrewdness is a good word. It's about acting wisely. So when we go out, we're sent out by Jesus as the disciples were. When we go out into the world, be shrewd. Be wise. Don't just go up to anyone and get in their face and start saying, turn or burn. That's not real shrewd. That's just obnoxious be shrewd when you when you grab a waiter and say hey we're about to pray can we pray for you be careful with that that's that's a good thing but it might not always be a welcome thing read people be shrewd the sons of this age he says verse 8 again this master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly this is jesus speaking for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own, to their own kind, than the sons of light. I want you to note that. Jesus notes two kinds of people, as he does elsewhere throughout the New Testament. There are the sons of this age, and there are the sons of light. Believers and unbelievers. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks of the two kinds of people as one who are children of God, and the rest are children of The devil. John 8 44. He looks at the Pharisees Who are, who are um, attacking him And it's really a red faced argument In the context of John 8 And they're questioning where he comes from And he says you are of your father The devil These are religious people You are of your father the devil That's pretty bold 1 John chapter 3 verses 8 and 10 John speaks of two kinds of people They're the children of God And they're the children of the devil By the way Those children of the devil might be your very offspring. They might be my offspring. They don't look like, I mean, they don't have horns. We all had those horns until we came to know Christ. But there are still two people on this planet, children of God. We're all the creation of God. God made us all in His image. But there are two kinds of people within those created in His image, the children of God and the children of the devil. Here are the sons of light and the sons of this age. And so Jesus is saying, the sons of this age are more shrewd than the sons of light. And he's using this man that did what he did. He took somebody's money. He misspent somebody else's money. He went and he got that money back in also a very, we would say, a shrewd way, but in a way that also cheated his master. And yet Jesus is saying, what Jesus is using is say, look at what he did. Look at how he did it. This man was like those thieves I told you in the the illustration. He saw his predicament, and in the interest of self-preservation, here's what I'll do. I'll go make these people pay me something so that when I am out and have nowhere to go, they'll have a place for me at their table. I won't have to pay as much back to my master because I will have gotten some of it back. I'll be good. And while I'm trying to pay it back, I have a place to go for all these people I helped. That's rude. Jesus is committing. He said, that's what the, the children of this world do. The people of this present darkness, unbelievers, have this innate sense of self-preservation. They lie when they need to, and they survive. They steal when they need to, and they survive. Most of them are living by the old adage of the survival of the fittest. Uh, Most people believe that if they hurt another person and it benefits them, well, that's perfectly fine. That's Darwinianism at its finest. If it benefits me to hurt or kill you, why should I be held responsible for that? Isn't that why we still exist today? If the survival of the fittest is actually true or should be true, that's how the sons of this age act. They are more shrewd because the sons of light don't tend to act like that. Um, Chuck Swindoll says this. He says, if we were as eager and ingenious to attain wisdom and goodness as the unsaved are to attain money and comfort, our lives would show dramatic change. If we were as relentless in our pursuit of forgiveness and grace as the unsaved are in their pursuit of winning, our relationships would also show a dramatic change. Kent Hughes says, likewise, he said, if only Christians would give as much attention to the things that concern eternity as they do to their worldly business. If only we would be as spiritually shrewd as the corrupt manager was in temporal pursuits. If we sought to win the loss to Christ with the same gumption that the children of this age act in their own self-preservation, what might happen? If we sought to push the gospel and have it spread to the world with as much vigor as we do to build our companies, go on vacation, enjoy leisure, we might actually see something good happen. If you spend as much time reading God's Word and on your knees in prayer as you do with the gym, you might see some benefit in your spiritual life. If you gave as much money To the church of Jesus Christ. As you do to feed your animals. You might see some benefit in your spiritual life. That's essentially what he's saying. These people are relentless. In their self-preservation. They are more so than the sons of light. And so Jesus says. I say to you. Make friends for yourselves. By means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That's just. What? What? Make friends for yourself. What is Jesus saying? Okay, guys, take the money that you have. Anything you do, just go use it however you can to make friends. That is not what he's saying. This has a context. You don't ever don't memorize uh, Luke sixteen nine and go around <laughs> trying to share the gospel with it. Or if you become famous, sign your name and write Luke sixteen nine. People are going to look that up and go, "Wow, okay, uh, that's weird." Jesus' conclusion is make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Now, there's only one kind of wealth. The wealth of this world, money, possessions. It is not unrighteous in and of itself, but it is of this world. Money does not go with us. You know that, correct? However big your bank account is or small, it's not going with you. I remember when my my grandfather died on my dad's side. Dad went through his wallet, and it was $1, 1974, and $1. And my dad looked at me, showed me that dollar, and he said, Lance, it didn't matter if it was $100 or $1. He didn't take it with him." I remember that scene. I think of it all the time, actually. Um, and Jesus is saying, that, that money, that's what makes it unrighteous. It's not heavenly. It helps us in the here and now on this side of eternity. It is hence the wealth of unrighteousness. The wealth that the rich man had wasn't necessarily, in this parable, wasn't necessarily um, unrighteous. But he was charging interest embedded within the loan that made it unrighteous. And then the guy that was managing it was using it in a way that was also unrighteous. So Jesus is essentially saying what that guy did, take note of in some measure. The wealth of unrighteousness, if we define it, is just money. It's just money. If you earned it honestly, it's just money. If you stole it from a bank, well, that's a different story. He's not talking about bilking people out of money. It's just that money in itself is the money, the wealth of unrighteousness. Or if you have a King James Version, the mammon, uh, which would include all of our our, uh, things and our possessions, our wealth and possessions. So again, make friends with this wealth. What friends Jews actually thought that this belief, or some Jews anyway, not all, I can't speak for all of them, but the ones that I've read, um, believe that this could be God. Since God is a plural entity, in fact, the Hebrew word Elohim, uh, which is often used for God in the Old Testament, it's not the only name for Him, it's more of a designation, He's God, is actually a plural word, Elohim. Uh, The I-M means it's plural. And so, some have said, well, the Make Friends is is." Use your money to make sure God likes you. I don't necessarily think that because he's saying, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Well, God is the one who, who resides in eternity, in unapproachable light, according to 1 Timothy 6, uh, where we see God. We can't see God because He's in unapproachable light. He's in heaven. He's in the eternal dwellings. But really, shouldn't friends be those that are already there with God, perhaps? We just take friends as as it is, those people who are already with God in heaven. So we could add God to the equation, part of the friends. The angels are there with God. And those who have come to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. All of these, or all the above, are going to be the friends. And we are to use the wealth of this world to make those friends who are in eternal dwellings? Are you still confused? No, I left you there. It's, it's, it's purposeful, but thank you for answering so readily. <laughs> How do we use this money to make these friends? That's where this becomes clear. Folks, at our church, I grew up in a Baptist church where you, uh, there's a time in the, in the worship service where, where there's a, a plate that's passed. You remember this, most of you went to church your life, you get that. Someone sings a solo or there's a band, there's a song, there's something going on while that plate's being moved around. And that's the offering. And if you're a good Baptist like I was, you check all the boxes, present, Sunday school lesson read daily, great Christian, going to heaven when I die, boom, 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 put that money in there, seal it in, drop it in that bucket and watch and see if everyone around you saw you do it. You see that? That was mine. I did that. At ours, it's it's a little less conspicuous, a little more conspicuous. You just go and you drop it in a box, folks. Let me tell you what happens to money in a church. At least money in this church, the money that you put in that box, or that you give online, or that you wherever you give it here, you may not see where it goes. I come back every week, so I'm getting a salary. As are our staff. The staff at the church gets paid. Uh, we are taken care of in a sense. Not only that, is everyone comfortable? We have nice chairs, air conditioners on, on a nice hot day. Okay, that pays for that. Not only the staff and the comfort, lights are on, uh, the uh, microphone works. It's all good. That, that We know that it pays for. But there's also a whole slew of missionaries that receive money that you give to that box or that you give when you tap okay on your online giving. And that money goes to these missionaries who are all over the planet. We don't have a, a ton of them. We're not like a first or second Baptist church, for sure. We don't have a $50 million budgets, and we don't have as many missionaries as others, but we have missionaries that are supported. One person, maybe two people, maybe a couple. The money helps go to these people who are sharing the gospel in Romania, in uh, the UK, uh, in South Africa, in Florida, in India. All over this planet, you don't even know, some of you don't know these missionaries. We have a tack board out the back. You can see where the mission's money goes, and you can be introduced to our missionaries. Every one of them has a nice little picture card. Those people are at work sharing the gospel, utilizing your money, our money, to spread the gospel. What they're doing, in addition to what you're doing with your voice and your influence, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's where I'm going with this. The people who are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ because of our giving are the friends who will greet you when you come through the doors and those gates of splendor. When I was 31 years old, I had a master's degree, I had education, and it was over, done. I'm not going back to school. And that's what really makes God laugh when you tell Him things like that. Oh. If you, want to, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Well, I'm not going back. I have a master's degree in counseling. I have a, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. This is what I'm doing, Lord. And he's going, no, no, no. You've just been wasting your time and money, Lance. I don't know what you've been doing, but here's where you're going. You're going back four more years of seminary. I, can't under, I couldn't afford that. No way I could afford that. I didn't have the time. It was time to get a job. I was married. Time to grow up. So because this was God's call, I felt it on my life, I, I sent out letters to people. Friends and family. Here's what I'm going to do. My wife is, what, six months pregnant at the time, something like that. We're going to have a baby. I mean, I'm mean, i in real trouble here. Can you help me? God's calling me, I think. And we have this flood of people that start giving us money every month. From, from $250 a month, actually one guy was giving up to $1,000 a month, to $25 a month. You don't know most of these people. 99% of them, none of you know them. But they helped pay for my education and my life to get through Dallas Seminary, to become a pastor here, to preach the gospel. And for those of you who call me your pastor, they're going to welcome you into eternal dwellings. Those people that hear me in other countries, again, I'm a nobody. I'm a small town, small, influential pastor. What influence I have is small. I'm definitely not those of a, of a Chuck Swindoll type where there's thousands upon thousands who buy their books. I'm not that. You know that. But what influence we do have is broadcast literally all over the world. We've shown you in our, our annual meetings of how many countries download the sermons preached from this pulpit all over the planet, the Middle East, the Far East, the Near East, Oklahoma. Alaska, Hawaii, India, Bangladesh, all over the planet, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. There are listeners in Germany, in the UK, listening to little old me. How do you think they get to listen to it? Because you give to God's cause. Because that costs money. They're doing it right now. They'll listen to it later. They write in. There are people that have church. I'm their pastor. And they're in another country. They let me preach them the church, and they have their church in their home. That's how that works in some homes. People write me and tell me. There's one gentleman in Boston who listens to me with his son and a couple others, and he brought me uh, to say thank you a Boston Red Sox t shirt. I have no idea what to do with it. <laughs> but I appreciate the gesture. It was a wonderful gift that I don't know what to do with. It would just be a betrayal to my beloved Astros. <laughs> These people. Because people are coming to know Christ based upon what you give, what we give together, and how it influences the world, not only through our missionaries, but through the pastorate here and the media ministry. They will come into heaven. You ever bumped into somebody and they're looking at you and you know you don't know them. And you're going, oh, this is going to be awkward because I don't know you. That's what it's going to be like. When you go in through the gates of splendor at your death, there's going to be a whole host of people saying that gift you gave when you couldn't do it, God used that to transform my life, and that's why I'm here. And there might be a whole line waiting for you to tell you the same thing. That pastor that you supported when he was 31 years old and he had a young and pregnant wife. That pastor that you supported kept preaching the gospel 23 years into his ministry, and I was one of those people that God caused to listen to that, and I came to know Christ. You helped support him. We're all in this together. These are the friends. This is what God means. This is what Jesus means when he says, take the money of this world, that wealth of unrighteousness, and make eternal friends. So that when you go through the gates of splendor, they're there to welcome you. Now, folks, if that's not a motivation to give of what God has given you, I don't know what is. This is the point Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Why, Lord? So that when it fails, and it will, money burns up, it's gone. It has a shelf life based upon our lives. When it's gone, when it's all used up, that's what the word means, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's what the the unjust steward was doing. He made use of wealth so that the people that... He was helping would give him a place at their table. Jesus is saying, take that and go, oh, so much further. Use the money God has given you for the purpose of an eternal investment in people. Not animals, not our dream home per se, not our leisure, not to say you can't use it for that at some level. This should not make anyone feel guilty about redoing their kitchen or going on a vacation. In no way is it saying, don't do that. What's your priority? What are you going to do? What is your goal in investing in eternity? Is your goal to retire? We all want to have enough money when we want to stop working and, and have enough money to live on. You can take that money and you can go live happily ever after if you want. Not necessarily a sin, but to take it and invest in your eternity. I mean, if you only got 10 years left, and you don't know, none of us know how much we have left. But if you're in your 60s, 70s, you have less time than if you lived to old age as those of us who are younger than you. So let's say you have 10 years left. Is your money meant to help your last 10 years be as comfortable as you can? Or is it invested into eternity? where the benefits will never dry up. Imagine the scene you coming through. Imagine the scene really the moment before you die. You know you're passing. Some do, some know when they're going to. They say their last words that that last breath of air should be that grin on your face as I'm about to go through the gates of splendor I am going to go through and I am going to see God and there is going to be a line with God the angelic beings that we only see pictures of that we've made pictures of and people, friends who are going to welcome me oh let go of my hand brother let me go let me go through those gates what a beautiful scene what a thought The Apostle Paul in Philippians four seventeen says this about money. Um, Paul, as you know, was a traveling um, missionary. He didn't have a job. He was supported. I mean, he could make tents, and he did when he had to. Uh, but he was supported by the churches where he that he had planted. He's writing to the Philippians. He's in jail, and the Philippians have been sending him gifts. I mean, you didn't get three squares a day in prison. You had to be fed by people that loved you. And this was one of the groups that that gave him money. He writes to them in Philippians chapter 4, and he speaks of a gift that the Thessalonians had sent him in verse 16. But he says this to the Philippians. He says, not that I seek the gift itself. In other words, I'm not asking you to send me money so I can have more. I seek for the profit which increases to your account. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you to give to my ministry so that you profit from it. That's God's way, is saying, I don't, God, we all know God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money, it's just that simple. So why do we give to God? His cause, he is allowing it at this time, at this junction, at this, as his plan, that money is used and it be used wisely to increase his kingdom. And he doesn't need it, but he wants us to give. He's saying, if you don't want to give, that's fine. That's to your detriment. But I want you to give it so that it will increase your profit. So that it will increase to your benefit. And one of those benefits are the beneficiaries who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ through us or through the church that we support. Are you using your money and your possessions to help others? Maybe you have very simple means, one house, one car. Maybe you can help someone with that. Maybe you're wealthy and you have two homes or three. You've got cars you don't necessarily need. Have you, you search for people who need those. Are you available to use your possessions? Are your possessions available, I should say? What about inheritances? I started thinking about the inheritances. When you're, you leave money, we die. Whatever money we have left over, we put it in a will and we give it to whomever we, we choose, typically our families. Now, I don't want to make anyone mad because I don't want to keep anyone from getting a, an inheritance that maybe they deserve. But folks, listen to me. When you leave your money behind, if you leave it to the right people, after you're gone, more friends will flood in because the money you left... Worked to make more friends. In other words, if you leave your money with people or a church or a seminary that's preaching God's Word, you leave that money with them, they equip more preachers and missionaries to preach the Word. That Word goes, you're gone, you're with Jesus already, but the money you left is making more disciples. And they come in and they greet you again. Want to thank you now. Not only do you get friends going in, you get friends coming in. Isn't that beautiful? I know. You're sitting there thinking, we should have missed today. This is going to cause us to have to reevaluate what we've done with our money. Me too. I'm actually quite confused. I had a plan wealth of unrighteousness. It's about eternal dwellings, not about our temporary dwelling per se. Some of you may give 10%. You grew up a Southern Baptist like I did. You were taught to give you 10%. By the way, nowhere in the New Testament is 10% taught. Nowhere. It's a principle taken from the Old Testament tithe, which means a tenth. But when you add up all the tithes of the Old Testament, it comes up to about 28% of your income. It's no longer a tenth. And it it was the taxes is what it was. And then on top of that, you give a free will offering. And that's what we have today. We have about, what, 18 to 25% taxes, and then we give a free will offering, perhaps, to our church and to our charity. But there, the tithe is not taught in the New Testament. However, if you want to give tithe, let's just assume that tithe is your principle. You give 10% of your money, 15%, 20%, maybe you give 50%. Whatever it might be, that's good. Make sure you do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, 5, 6, 7, says that we are to be cheerful givers. Not 10% givers, per se. Cheerful givers. Whatever you give, give with cheerfulness. Not reaching in the pocket going, oh, this is going to hurt. You kind of linger over the box, honey, because we could pay off the house with this one. Drop it. See what God does. But to do that is, is taking this money, this 10%, whatever it is, once that's done, now the question becomes, maybe even more importantly, how responsible are you with the remaining 90%? In other words, don't just give you 10%, drop it in the box and say, okay, done with that, I can do whatever I want. Perhaps, maybe, possibly, we're going to be judged more for the 90% than the 10%. And I say "Judge" is not as if God is saying, I'm going to get you for not doing that. It's look at what you are cheating yourselves out of in eternity by not giving this. Remember Paul, Philippians four 17. I'm not seeking the gift. I'm seeking the gift that you give for your own profit. That's what God wants. Well, you might say, well, we look at this church. It looks like we're all doing fine here. We'll find someplace else to give. A lot of people do that. Too many people do that. The church of Jesus Christ, however, is what Jesus set up on the earth. He didn't set up parachurch ministries. He didn't set up the missionary agencies. Those go out from the church. The church is to be funded, first and foremost. That's what Jesus Christ funded. Now, if you don't give to your church, it means probably you don't trust your pastor and the elders of the church. Well, we don't really trust them to give the money where we want. I would say there's a maturity to trusting your pastor and elders, your leaders, and not thinking you have to supervise the distribution of your money, leaving it into the hands of those who distribute it. I can tell you that our Simple way here is to pay our bills and give the rest out to the missions. In the last couple of years, the giving has been so good that the missionaries have gotten a lot of good, ch- a good chunk of change, is what I'm going to say. Money that they hadn't thought possible. And that's a great blessing. Whoa, my emails in return are whoa. Is your giving drawing you closer to God? Or lack of giving taking you further away. Some of you are very uncomfortable right now. I think I'll just sit and pause. Because and <laughs> you don't give. And you'll leave here today and you won't talk about it with your spouse. You won't give. And that's it's okay. I am not your judge. You are only cheating yourselves. You ever walked into a party, you've known no one? Well, that's awkward, isn't it? Uh, who are these people? What am I going to do? Walk around. I don't know that it's going to be that way in heaven. You'll know Jesus. You're not getting there without knowing him. But how many introductions is he going to have to make? Because you don't know anybody. You've made no investment in anything of God. Only your own satisfaction. As we close, I want you to turn over to Matthew's Gospel, 25, and I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 25 is in the context of the second coming of Christ. And here's what he does when he arrives. There is the rapture of the church, which is an imminent event. It could happen at any moment. So when Jesus raptures his church, it's just over. Christians are taken we meet Jesus in the air. Seven years transpire. That's the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18. Once those years transpire, Revelation 19 occurs, and the second coming of Christ happens. When He comes to the earth, there are believers left, and there are unbelievers. There are not that many people alive. Most have died in the horrible judgments of God, but Jesus will separate those who are believers from those who are unbelievers. Sheep and goats. That's what Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's the throne of David in Jerusalem. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, These are the sheep. Come. You who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And come to you. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, or to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, mind you, after the rapture of the church and the wrath of God begins to pour out, it starts slowly and it gets really bad at the end. It's like a woman in childbirth. Labor pains begin early. Honey, I think we need to go to the hospital. Five minutes part. 30 seconds apart, down here, oh Lord, kill me, get this baby out of me. That's the tribulation. At that point, there are, it's so bad, people are dying, food is gone, famine, war. If there was ever a time where people needed help, it will be in the tribulation time period, especially near the end. God's people, these sheep, will have converted to Christ during that tribulation because they weren't raptured, they weren't believers then, but during the tribulation, they come to know Christ and they begin to serve Christ. And they see all the needy. They don't go underground and use all their their, uh, their stockpile of food and, and supplies underneath the ground and, and just kind of sheltering down, hunkering down. They're out helping. They're taking the least of these. People that no one cares about. People who have been abandoned. People who should be left to die. They're helping them. And when Jesus returns, he noted it. Because every person they helped, he says, was like helping him. And he does the opposite. He looks over to those at his left. And he says, I was all those things and you didn't help. And they say, when did that happen? And he says, to the extent that you didn't help anyone, you didn't help me. These are the friends, my friends. These are the friends that Jesus says, again, in verse 9, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, the wealth of this world, so that when it's all burned up, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. What are you doing with your life, your possessions, your overage? You can either use it to your eternal benefit or to your own temporary comfort. It's your call. But this is what Jesus says. When he says, look out and do what this guy says in 16. Again, let me read it again and we'll close. In 16.9. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails... They will receive you into eternal dwellings. Who or what are you living for? Let's pray. Lord, anything about money is Mm -hmm. uncomfortable for us. We like it. We want it. It helps us. We can get the things we want. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire for those eternal things, for the things that matter. People. That what we do, how we spend our money today, Lord, I pray that it would be the investment we want. It may not bring back $10 on the dollar, but it may bring 10 people on the evangelistic effort. I pray that that be what we desire, that our investment would be in eternity. I pray that you would convict us. Don't let us leave here. Turn on the radio and forget this. This is your word. Your word is convicting. It's difficult, it's supposed to be difficult. God, I thank you for it personally and how it's challenged me. I pray that I not leave here and forget it. Convict us. When we pray that you mold us and make us after your will, this is the way you do it. Through conviction, through difficult passages like this. So mold us and make us after your will. Don't let us go, Lord. We want to be set free and do what we want. Don't let us. In Jesus' name. May God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Walde, senior pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.